Hi everyone, I'm Summer. I'm Carrie. And this is Hopoxia Podcast. Join us to talk about sex, drugs, and self-improvement. Welcome back. And um, unfortunately, we are minus Carrie today. She is out sick. Um, but Jessica's joining me so that we can have a conversation about psychopathy. Um, because a lot of people have um, sent me messages asking me what it's like to parent a um, child who is, um, it appears, to, uh a psychopath uh, born with psychopathy. A couple of things I do want to say. Um, she is a minor, but I, I, th that is not the reason that I restrict what I say or how much of her story I tell. I do that because it's her story to tell, not mine. Mm -hmm. I, I try to address only my side of things, like how it affects our family, but still I, I'm pretty vague on details. Um, I did have somebody call you know try to, to call me out on TikTok recently um because i made a comment about her um practicing um emotional mimicry and oh. so and they said that i was trying to call her out negatively i'm like wait a second her being her being born with psychopathy or the skills that she's learning to try to navigate life are not inherently negative no. So I do want to put that out there for anybody who watches or listens to this. When we use words like psycho a psychopath, sociopath, all of those things, we are speaking clinically. This is not. It's not a judgment. Right. It is not a right. judgment. And part of our goal here at Hypoxia is to eliminate that stigma mm -hmm. because it's, it's not her fault. She was born with psychopathy mm -hmm. that is genetic. She, she, we all get the, uh, you know, the uh, DNA lottery. And that's right. Just what she is has to navigate her life with. And my job as her parent is to try to give her the best um, environment to grow in and mm -hmm. learn to navigate that. And then, and that's what I'm trying to do because each of our kids are different, and we have to tailor our parenting accordingly. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Jessica, will you kind of give us a little bit of your background um, sure. so that the audience knows yeah. your experiences? Yes. So um, I am a former clinician. I, um, I'm what you call an ABD psychologist, so all but dissertation. Um, so I have my master's in um, applied psychology and I was going for my PsyD but did not complete my program. Um, I did have, I have lots and lots of working experience that's um, related to what we call forensic psychology. So that's when you start to kind of merge the criminal aspects with the treatment stuff that you would do for kind of a more general population. Um, I kind of fell into that work. Um, I originally started going into uh, psychology so that I could work with people with disabilities. That was my primary, you know, focus. Um, I ended up doing an externship at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, where I was working at the women's um, jail ward. So, you know how you have like Rikers Island in New York. Um, for the women who would become too psychotic at to be at the psychotic in that in the psychology ward at Rikers, 
they were acutely ill enough to require to go to the hospital. So that they had like a very limited ward for women. So I got my first experience working with kind of that overlap of um, women and women who had committed crimes and women who had psychological disorders. But I also got my very first like experience with women with psychopathy. And it's interesting to me now too, because even having worked in like a few different places with different different populations at this point, um, it took like a few years <laughs> to find a supervisor who was able to give me a broader training and understanding of people with psychopathy because it wasn't part of like my formative um, graduate school courses. And I kind of later learned that that's because there's really not a lot of agreement <laughs> among psychologists about whether this is really a phenomenon. So in some respects, I think people who are dealing with psychopathy are still, uh, and especially like the families of, are still dealing with the uh, trying to get this recognized on a clinical level. So that's its own uphill battle. And it kind of reminds me of like other uh, medical phenomena that have happened with people in the past where they talk about like, hey, I think I have fibromyalgia and the doctors are like, oh, you mean you're depressed? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think like uh, there's, there's some resistance to acknowledging psychopathy as a disorder because some clinicians believe that uh, there's no suffering with psychopathy, so we're not gonna. Um, yeah, there's no suffering for the for the Makes person sense. with psychopathy, you right. know. So why would we bother like pursuing this as a thing? Um, and uh, the other thing that I mean, my understanding of the most recent formation of the DSM, which is the the big bible of all the particular disorders you can have psychologically. Um, is that it? The the consensus was that clinicians could not properly be trained on how to identify um, psychopathy with any degree of regularity. So it's still kind of within that little cluster of um, antisocial personality disorder. I say all that to say it took me a while to find like, and I and I as I said, I fell into it. <laughs> um, supervision and people with like genuine expertise that I could learn from. Um, but there is a, you know, a sort of a family of <laughs> people who are interested in this kind of work who go into it and pursue it mainly maybe because they want to be like working at the FBI or maybe they want to do prison work or whatever, but they, they do pursue it specifically. It, but it is not a huge percentage of like the average clinician who has a great, uh, fluidity, fluency with dealing with psychopathy and criminal behaviors in general. So. So you mentioned that this is not a diagnosis, um, which I'm not sure that the general public actually understands that. That's right. <laughs> it is not a specific diagnosis it, uh, any more than sociopath is. They're right under the umbrella of antisocial personality disorder. Correct. Um, and that is interesting that the, the, the patient isn't suffering, so there's not the motivation. That, that's what I've heard before. Um, interesting. So, so how far 
a way, I wonder, are we from having a diagnostic ability? Because what they started doing, like functional MRIs, um, to, I don't know what the word is, but to establish that there is a brain difference between psychopaths and the rest of us. What was that? The 80s, 90s? Uh, I mean, I was just kind of brushing up because I'm, I have been out of practice for over 10 years. So I'm even behind the times as to what like the science of psychopathy and treatment has evolved to, but you're right. Like the, um, the, the neuroimaging stuff shows really like low activity in the amygdala. Um, I also just want to say too, like, and I know you've said this before, um, you've talked about, uh, where psychopathy kind of fits in with um, antisocial personality disorder and all that other stuff. So we categorize the one thing that is diagnostic, like you can put a diagnosis on it and it has like a code, right? Yeah. <laughs> is uh, antisocial personality disorder that is in the, um, the DSM. Mm-hmm. Um, psychopathy is like the extreme version of that. <laughs> and it's like a little sliver, um, you know, like 1% of the, uh, of the antisocial personality disorder. And Mm -hmm. so it's really just like the more extreme uh, version of that. And uh, there are um, uh, rubrics and checklists to be able to do, to determine if somebody does have psychopathy and there are agreed upon terms, definitions and behaviors that clinicians who work with people with psychopathy do agree on, but it doesn't mean that every psychologist says, oh yes, this is a valid measure. So like the standard for people who are working with psychopathy is the PCLR, which is a psychopathy checklist revised. And that is uh, by uh, Robert Hare, who did, uh, has done amazing work with people with psychopathy. And I really recommend um, if you're new to the world of looking at psychopathy and want it from like a very like layman's terms, uh, the book Without a Conscience is fantastic. I have a copy here. <laughs> I need to read that one. Yeah, it's very good. It's very, like, it's scientific, It's but it's also based on, like, the collection of his data that uh, he had in terms of, like, uh, his uh, case experiences with people. Um, the bulk of my experience that I had working with people with psychopathy was uh, working with um, sex offenders in a civil commitment uh, facility where we happened to have kind of a disproportionate to the regular prison population amount of psycho- psychopaths in, inside. So I got a lot of broad experience. <laughs> Another book I like mm-hmm. um, is The Psychopath Whisperer. By Dr. Yes, Kent Keel, and he was actually mentored by Dr. Hare. So, he, and yes. he's the one who started the functional MRI imaging nice. on psychopaths working um, primarily within the prison system. Yes, because that's where they are. As, uh, that is where they are, and he found yeah. out because he did transition out of prisons at one time and tried to do it in the community, and being able to keep <laughs> keep your your. Uh, participants coming back and on track mm-hmm. with research as you have to do is not as easy when they're not a literal captive, captive audience. No, it's yeah. it's true. And plus the motivation for doing treatment, I think is different when you have something like a carceral system. Oh, that's so, mm-hmm. you know, um, so it, it's not, you know, it, it is definitely has, um, 
some ethics that I think are appropriate to be questioned. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, that said, um, this just happens to be where they are. And so this is where, you know, if you're a clinician that's interested in that, this is where you go, you know. Mm -hmm. And so. there's also a website for any of the audience who wants to learn more information. There is a an organization called Psychopathy Is. Um, and the website is psychopathyis.org. And mm -hmm. their basic um, purpose is to try to get psychopathy researched more thoroughly yes. um, as an individual individual identifiable disorder. They have um, such great resources on that website. It's very clear and you know digestible that you could give somebody if you're a person who's as a is a caregiver or an educator or a clinician and you need you know want to make become more of a public advocate or even just to educate yourself i think that's an excellent resource i have noticed and that's one thing i hadn't really thought about it too much until i looked at their website and it, mm -hmm. it starts to, it it does go into depth about the how common psychopathy mm -hmm. is like it's one percent of the population and mm -hmm. i hear a lot of people who say they don't know any psychopaths right and in their head they picture you know the serial killer they saw on right. tv right? right and i'm like it's one percent of the population there are eight billion people in the world i'm not good at math but that's <laughs> a lot of that's several million, millions of people yeah uh, you statistically you do know psychopaths. right you just don't know it but right. they're not all violent. They're not right. all. They're no. not all Jeffrey Dahmer. They no. really aren't. No, no. I think uh, so. It's really important to conceptualize psychopathy. It's just a very extreme personality disorder. So when we talk about, like, I've always even struggled with the terminology of uh, personality disorder because I feel like it's too stigmatizing. But what we mean when we say personality disorder. There's a way that your personality is built such that it impairs your ability to have relationships and get along in the world. That's what that means. It's not because you're perceiving reality. You're, you're not hearing things and, other, and seeing things that other people aren't. You don't have odd beliefs necessarily, but you have this way of interpersonally relating that is really to a statistical, clinical, significant level impairing your ability to connect. So whether that's narcissistic personality disorder, borderline or antisocial, that's where you're having conflict. Psychopathy is kind of the same thing where it's this very extreme personality disorder, you know? Um, and the other piece is that in terms of how do you find, know if you've been, interacted with somebody who, it's like this very complex picture and all of these little elements have to be in place in order for you to have like a very clear understanding. Yes, this is, has, is a person with psychopathy. Um, but often, like you're right, people will just go, oh, I remember this really charismatic person, <laughs> you know, and you'll be like, oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And criminality is not, it's not, it's not always necessarily going to be the thing that defines a, um, a psychopath. It's going to, criminality can be a clue that that might need to be examined, but it's not, they're, they're separate domains. And so the thing that I experienced, because my particular area of expertise was working with sex offenders who had intellectual disabilities who were also psychopaths. And I got a lot of 
pushback from like the support team in the um, facility where I worked at who would say like, well, they're too, you know, they're too, forgive the word, but retarded to be able to have done XYZ LMNOP or no, or be able to take responsibility. I'm like, well, first of all, <laughs> criminality has nothing to do with intellect. You could have a very low intellect or a very high intellect and still commit crimes. And the same is also true with like psychopathy. You could have uh, um, no psychopathy or high psychopathy and you might or might not commit crimes. I don't know, but it's going to be like the full constellation of those um, pieces that is going to give me the proper picture about whether or not somebody has psychopathy. But yeah, they're, they're around <laughs> for right, sure. Definitely. <laughs> so can you kind of give us the um, Cliff's Notes version of the characteristics yes and i'm going to refer to my notes because it's large so yes um okay uh so um what we've got here is uh glib and superficial uh egocentric and grandiose a lack of empathy deceitful and manipulative shallow emotionality impulsive poor behavioral controls a need for excitement, lack of responsibility, early behavior problems, and lack of remorse. Um, another thing that we used to see is like a uh, like if there if there's going to be criminality, it's not necessarily like I'm a bank robber and I'm only a bank robber and I just rob the banks. <laughs> like, oh, we've done it all. <laughs> like, you know, like, you can see you see a lot of like uh, variability within within the criminality as well. So those are the those are the hallmarks. But um, you know, yeah. So those are the hallmarks. <laughs> and it mentioned early behavioral. Um, I I actually connected with a group of because. For those who aren't aware, when their personality disorders cannot be diagnosed until you're an adult. That's right. So the juvenile diagnosis is conduct disorder. Yes. It is based on behavior. So not all kids with conduct disorder are psychopaths. Right. But most psychopaths are going to have some sort of conduct disorder. That's right. <laughs> and anyway, so I posted with them because I... My daughter, which of course her initial... It's, it's not uncommon for these kids to go through many incorrect diagnoses before they, we finally get there as they grow and we can kind of see the pattern. But her original diagnosis was reactive attachment disorder um, because a lot of those behaviors at those ages do overlap. And mm -hmm. because she was um, involved in the foster care system, that was just kind of the assumption. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I had seen like the, the she didn't move in with me till she was five, but we had had some contact prior to that because we were already involved with the family. Um, so like when I met, when I saw her, when she was two, you could already see the flat affect, the um, inappropriate um, familiarity with strangers. She didn't mm -hmm. have that age appropriate fear of strangers. Mm -hmm. um, and even when she was an infant, my then husband had seen her, you know, when she was a few months old and she should have been at that point, babies are interacting with you and kind of playing. She wouldn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. And her family also reported that she um, 
she was a good baby. She almost never cried. She didn't have that normal emotional range, right? Which most people associate with, oh, they're good because it's easy, right? But mm-hmm. that's actually a red flag. Right. Um, so I, anyway, I posted in the group for parent asking parents because I couldn't find any research on this. Like, is there, is this a commonality in children that young? And so anecdotally, most of them, of the ones that have now, which their kids are, are older adults or I mean, older teenagers or adults now all said that their kids had the same, the same or similar symptoms mm-hmm. from birth. Mm-hmm. Why are we told that? Um, yeah, <laughs> because it's really fuzzy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of these, um, you know, you could talk about like flat affect being, uh, it's, it could be, that's like the tip of the iceberg for a multitude of things that could be happening with a child. Right. Um, so that, and that's really the problem is that like those, when you're talking about a personality disorder and you think about when do you have your fully formed personality, it's not really until adulthood. So like, and when is that, <laughs> you know, right. neuro- neurologically those structures are still building and forming for a, a pretty long time, you know? Um, and so, uh, it's really, really tricky. It is absolutely the truth that there are people who have children with psychopathy who are uh, clearly psychopaths from birth. Like, mm-hmm. um, but they're also, you know, a good, I guess the good, like, a good clinician is going to examine really all of those pieces first. And it is going to be like, a, a longer process of a rule out with, you know, reactive attachment would be, would make sense for, you know, a, a person brought up in the foster care system right. um, or somebody who's had, you know, a really traumatic attachment um, disruption for, of, of any kind, you know? Um, and then too, like, because it's just the more, it, it because, because this is also just such a small segment of the population, the likelihood that it's going to be this particular zebra. Right. But why know? aren't we told as parents, like, to recognize, or just community members in general, like, to mm-hmm. recognize, okay, so flat affect, for example, mm-hmm. that indicates something, right? Yeah. It could be a lot of things, even autism. Some, some autistic mm-hmm. people have flat affect. Mm-hmm. But why are we not taught just to accept that that shows something Mm -hmm. and to like to follow up and pursue right and to and to uh, deal with that person in whatever way is appropriate for them given whatever their specifics are instead of so we're going to teach them how to pretend to be happy all the time which is what happened to her and her family of origin she was just taught to pretend to be happy I mean, I feel like I hear people with autism talking about that with in terms of masking. So I think like you're pointing to like a larger question about like ableism in our in our society and community too. like, Mm -hmm. we expect a certain amount of conformity. um, And uh, why are we not taught uh, these discernible signs and symptoms of things that might or might not be going on? Why are we not allowed to be attuned? I mean, I feel like these are things that are punishing no matter which direction, because we're not really given support as parents for really very much at all of any kind, like 
typical or not typical kid mm-hmm. like and i don't think it's possible to even like tell the story like your story of where you're coming from is i think it's impossible to tell that story without talking about the lack of resources that it are inherent and that has been on purpose it has been so it's it's a very isolating experience like you know trying to gain uh i want to you know if you have a kid who has a an issue you want their treatment to be like the most up-to-date empirical effective treatment like if you come to terms with the fact that this is what is happening you want the best for whatever your kid is going through and when you have a kid with something really specific every time you add another layer of specificity it gets harder and harder to match them with a caregiver and when you layer that with our systematic uh, defunding and dismantling of mental health structures in, in Oklahoma I mean I feel like it's like ground zero for trying to see what happens when you take away mental health entirely and rely completely on the carceral system Absolutely. There are no options. There are zero options for us. Um, She has been, she went inpatient a few times this year. Mm -hmm. Um, But once they get past the acute and they're like, oh, she's not a danger to herself. Because one of the tactics she was using, what happened was one of the tactics she was using there for a little while to distress me was to threaten to harm or um, unalive herself. which as we finally found out she (laughs) acknowledged later that oh no she was just doing that too (laughs) to get a rise right Mm -hmm. um so they'll take her for the acute period of time till they realize oh what's happening and they're like oh we are not going to treat that we we won't treat her for psychopathy because she says she's not willing to do the um what is the what is the treatment? It's not not CBT. What's the other one? PCIT, the that one or the oh DBT? DBT. DBT okay. is the one everybody wants her to try, and nobody she okay. won't do it. She did CBT for a while. Um, she also when she was younger, which fortunately we were kind of lucky that she got the rad diagnosis mm-hmm. as opposed to some of the other misdiagnoses that happen commonly. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. really, at that age, at five, six, seven, it's basically the same. That's right. Treatments as for if you're looking at, to, at right. something to, like psychopathy. So we did get right. kind of an early buy-in on, okay, my life is easier and I get more of the things I want if I follow the rules. So for the most right. part, so so most of like the damage that she's done and things like that, um, not to downplay it because it is quite expensive. I did a, I was part of a research study earlier this year where they make you, they wanted you to estimate like how much. Oh financially God. it costs you per year um for just things that they break and damage and you have to replace and it's about fifteen thousand dollars a year um which i don't make a lot of money that's a lot of money no and um, like just the it's a resource what you find is like a lot of scorched earth with relationships so when we talk when i talked earlier about personality disorder this is something that's getting in the way of your ability to connect with somebody else. If you're draining and extracting all of your primary caregivers energies because they're constantly cleaning up your messes, what ends up happening is a parent who, or a support system that's completely disinterested in helping you, (laughs) you know? Oh yes. There is nowhere. She's 15 now. Um, Mm -hmm. 
but there is nowhere else she can't go stay anywhere else mm-hmm. I can't I literally can't take her anywhere um mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter friends family it doesn't matter she will steal from them um in her she's, mind there's nothing wrong with that yeah so, no she's exhausted those outlets right, so already exhausted all of mm-hmm. those and there's mm-hmm. just no other options on that mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. of course we we are fortunate um that things it just kind of lined up the way they did and we moved to the property that we're on Mm -hmm. so her room she has a one-room cabin that is Mm -hmm. her room Mm -hmm. separate from the main house which Mm -hmm. she was super excited about because it makes her feel grown up to have her sure 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 um but um and that was already planned that way when we started looking for the property but as it turned out the timing turned out to be pretty well because that also kind of came together about the time that the safety risks to me and the threats and attempts on my life started so Mm -hmm. we were able to have a bit more security that way because now there is always a locked door (laughs) between us when we're sleeping and aren't able to necessarily (laughs) you know defend ourselves as as effectively and things like that that's not a privilege that most people have no the safety planning that you're talking about right and so creating safety planning in a typical household is extremely hard and yes you know i see parents talking agonizing over how what else they can do you know on that parent group um because you know you've got to protect there are some who like to harm animals she has admitted now to which I a long time I was suspicious way before we got the um you know anybody mentioned the possibility of psychopathy but there was a suspicious death of a couple of small pets and mm-hmm. I just said no more pets in the house right because I couldn't get to the bottom of what happened to them mm-hmm. and so I was kind of suspicious and I'm like no we're just not going to have any um but yeah younger kids even the adults, as they get older, you know, as teenagers get older, they're as big as us. And yes. they can do a lot of, so. Well, and I, like you pointed to like some of the behaviors that gave you clues that were, you know, um, suspicious in childhood. So the flat affect, mm-hmm. seeking stimulation, um, the harming of animals is, is, is definitely a cue, um, there can also be things like fire setting or uh, destruction of property. Um, That's one of her favorites, is destruction rule, of property. <laughs> That's ra- what costs me so much every year. <laughs> uh, yeah, fi- fire setting is also like super common. <laughs> um, she hasn't, to my knowledge, done that. Mm-hmm. She has the fascination with fire. Right. So, like when there's anything going on with fire, she is all about it. But so mm-hmm. far, I don't think we've crossed the line into actually arson mm-hmm. yet mm-hmm. maybe hopefully we won't get there yeah and there's like other stuff like the um bullying mm-hmm. the torment of siblings or same age peers sexual offending can also occur like this is these are the you know the the broad strokes but it even within like the things i'm listing you can hear how varied those behaviors can be but like when you're talking about a person with psychopathy, they've usually had like a a pattern of those, those behaviors in childhood as well. And, uh, I, I, 
I really, really like how you talked about establishing safety because I was thinking about like what permitted me to be able to enter in therapeutic relationships with, because I was working in a facility in Illinois that was like at the time 500 men with who had committed sex offenses and uh, the proportion of, so I think we talked about 1% of the population has psychopathy, one to two, somewhere in there. It's a, somewhere in it's, there. It's, the it's like mm-hmm. less in women, like less than 1% in women, one to 2% in men. Right. Um, and then uh, in the prison population, it's approximately like a quarter of mm-hmm. the population that's going to come up with psychopathy. In the place that I worked in, I'm, I'm putting an asterisk next to this because uh, it was high even in comparison to other places like in the United States that also did civil commitment, but it was like 72%, which is a really, really high figure to have like that level of medium to high psychopathy in a facility. So some of it had to do with like the very loose way that the evaluative system was occurring is what I've uh, come to understand (laughs) later was that we used to say, Oh, it was like 72% psychopaths in our facility, but it maybe, we'll see, (laughs) you know, it's still a lot, you know. Um, But uh, what was I saying? So uh, yeah, anyway. (laughs) So that was that high person. Oh, Mm -hmm. oh, I know what I was Safety planning is where you were going. There we go. So I have this supposed number of like this huge amount proportion of people with psychopathy. And even if they're not psychopaths, these are all sex offenders that I was working with. Right. Mm -hmm. So what is allowing me to safely navigate these relationships and even have like gains (laughs) with them? Um, So the physical safety that we had were these like these structures and barriers. Right. So I don't love the idea of prison right? I'm not, I'm not crazy about putting everybody behind bars. I'm not, uh, that's not what I love, but I also, uh, really have a hard time, like with knowing the things that I know how to do and not being able to provide the help to people that I know may not otherwise have access to that. Like, that's really what I'm passionate about. So I had like one guy once tell me, he's like, you just love that I'm locked up in here. You love that we're locked up in here because you have a job. And I was like, look, I'd go wherever you are. (laughs) Like, I want you to have this treatment because it makes your life better and it decreases the likelihood that you're going to harm others. I don't care if it's, I care that I'm able to do it. So what allows me to do that in this particular instance, if you're not going to be the person who controls yourself to like not harm me or somebody else, then here are these external controls that are going to be happening for you. You're going to have guards, you're going to have, you know, STAs or the security therapy aides or whatever have you in whatever facility that are going to be there to put, to make this a safe environment so that you and I can get the work done that we need to get done. You know? Um, so if that means plexiglass walls, that's what we're looking at, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I feel like you kind of intuitively did that as a parent, as you said, <laughs> here's where my, my barriers. The other thing that I did as a clinician was um, they just really didn't have a lot of information about me. Um, so I only used my last name when I was practicing. Um, I never discussed any personal conditions, my religion, my background, no siblings, you knew, I did not 
share those things. Mm-hmm. There are clinicians who make determinations to self-disclose, but I felt like, what's the point? You know, like I, either this is going to end up being information that's used against me, <laughs> either they're, they're going to, I'm going to be conned in some way right. or, um, uh, or I'm just making it about myself when really I'm here to like treat these guys. And the other thing is that like, People with psychopathy are really very closely observing you and they are watching for uh, blips and inconsistencies in what you say and what you do. Mm-hmm. And um, there's an uh, Alfred Adler said, trust only movement. And that's because they're watching, you know, like he, he was referencing something else, but like I have come back to that saying a lot that, um, you know, I have to be accountable for myself to show up at consistently every single time and say, um, here are the rules of engagement with me. You know, mm-hmm. here are my boundaries. Like, I don't mean boundaries as a way to like punish or withhold. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about boundaries that allow us to engage safely because you, if you do not have those internal controls to be able to not commit harm to me, then I have to put them in this other external way. And maybe that means you just don't know about anything about me because you're not safe to know anything about me, (laughs) you know? Um, And maybe when you demonstrate safety, then we can renegotiate the terms of that engagement. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so anyway, those are the, some of the the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about, because I was like, in my practice, this is how I was able to do really good work. (laughs) But like as a parent, they can't like not know about you, you know? <laughs> right. And you can kind of restrict some of that. Like I, I had got a little sideways with a clinician several months ago um, in her, the last facility she was in. They called me, they wanted to, you know, to do that initial meeting before they do, you know, set up the, the family intake. therapy. Uh-huh. Um, and she did not tell me I was on speakerphone and that my child was in the room. Oh, no. And so I disclosed a lot of things I wouldn't normally disclose. And I told her, and when she, when I heard her say, so what do you have to say about that? To her, I said, I'm sorry, is she in the room? Well, yes. And I'm like, okay, you should have told me that because there was a lot of things like my, you know, basically my feelings on things and the things that, you know, bother me or different people that I would not have said if I had known she was there and, and they countered with, well, um, she's old enough. She needs to be part of her treatment. I I understand that, but you just had, you just had me give hand her information to weaponize against her family members when we can simply avoid that by just not making those particular disclosures and keeping it fast, you know, on the surface level facts. So the rules of engagement have to be agreed upon so that we can have safe interactions. Right. And that's basic. One one thing that we had, like I said, we had already planned on doing the house setup this way because, Mm -hmm. you know, even not having the updated diagnosis because Mm -hmm. we were trying to design things, like I said before, to fit her needs and her Mm -hmm. needs are, we had observed from the time she was very young that she just does better if she has a place that's hers, mm-hmm. no one else is in it, and that gives her a place to go when she has 
big emotions that she can't control. She Absolutely. would learn, she would just go to her room, decompress, and then we could move forward. So we had already m- made that plan. So I do think there's something to be said for, and I don't know if this is just an American thing or if this is common in other places, but something about the authoritarian way Americans tend to parent to that, no, it will be done this way and this way only, doesn't allow for the flexibility of designing the relationship according to the needs of the child. And it, that- It's also like, to speak to like the cultural piece for us, it's completely counterintuitive to how like we are, how we approach children as being, we're in this collaboration. Mm-hmm. How am I going to be a parent best to you? Not, I have such fidelity to these values that I have to, you know, emulate Betty Crocker. Like, right. <laughs> like I'm trying to, I'm trying to be the best, bring the best you up that I can. So like what you're talking about is making this environment like super successful for like to the, here's the best possible situation. I'm going to recognize your strengths. I'm going to recognize your needs and I'm going to give you the things that you need. Here is your space. Here Mm -hmm. is where you can be successful. I'm not going to be punishing to you if you have big feelings you're allowed to have them. I feel like that's just reasonable respect, but it's also like that is not inherently to me, like not American to have right. view of children as having autonomy and being deserving of respect and not being seen as just property. You know, right. We don't see kids that way. You know? Right. And I think, and I think seeing kids that way and approaching it from that mindset mm-hmm. is also part of why we have had fewer physical altercations mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. Whereas, which this, that's, whereas like at school, mm-hmm. there were, were more issues I because see. Because there was the authoritarian setup of, no, you will do this because I told you to. And there mm-hmm. was continual escalation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which we thought at the t- initially was, you know, triggering trauma. But uh, as right. it turns out, it was really just more of, no, I'm not going to. And it doesn't matter what you do to me. And it's, uh, not, and it's not that you couldn't have psychopathy and have trauma, you know, right. but... <laughs> but we didn't learn until right. later when she would actually talk about those. She's like, no, I just don't think I, I, I just don't want to do that. And it didn't matter what they did to me. I'm just not going to do it. OK, well, there we are. But that's actually how she got ended up in virtual school mm-hmm. was we're like, OK, what is most important here? Well, what's most important is you getting the education. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to take the negativity out and, you know, Find a setup where you can get that without having the other. So, I mean, I know there's a lot of people who are highly critical of the way that I'm navigating things, but it is, <laughs> we're just trying to do, every family is just trying to do the best they can with what they've got. That's right. That's right. It, it's not, there is no roadmap for parenting in general, let no. alone parenting with. This 1% of the population. Right. Right. You know, with no support because even like, it's hard to find support as a parent for a typical child, mm-hmm. let alone a child with psychopathy. It's hard to find mental health treatment for typical problems, 
let alone psychopathy, let alone being in a rural area, let alone being in a red state, like all of these things (laughs) make it harder and harder and harder for us to find resources. So if you, if you're creating these little tweaks and pieces, I think that it's obviously yielding the, the, uh, the outcome that, is best for where you are like and i think kind of giving parents the benefit of the doubt is pretty important i mean i know there's garbage parents too but (laughs) (laughs) right right. but you're just trying to do what you can and right that's the thing too is we have to expectations management i think is huge Mm -hmm. in parenting a Mm -hmm. lot of people focus on the okay but i wanted to do all of these things and i you know i'm only doing half of them or whatever Mm -hmm. and so you know when my kid is you know making threats and ending up with police involvement and going to the facility oh that's the end of the world i'm like i mean considering where we could be no this is actually a pretty relatively good outcome that we've had so far you know well so i think we have to be realistic about what we're working with and realize that those things aren't necessarily inherently bad which Mm -hmm. i think brings us back to stigma too oh yes that's why we think those things are bad yes and don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and to be sure you never miss an upload make sure you turn your notifications on and please come join us on social media so we can continue these conversations in between episodes you'll find us at Hapoxia Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok.